Have you ever noticed the impact of your daily choices and activities on your overall sense of self-worth and well-being? Have you noticed if behavioral patterns in your own life are affecting your self-esteem and overall happiness? Have you ever been inspired by the incredible stories of individuals who triumphed over significant challenges and achieved extraordinary success? Have you ever wondered how they mastered themselves? Could self-mastery be a secret weapon for unlocking your own potential and striving for greatness in your own life? Join me after the intro for a conversation with a very special friend with whom we will answer these and many more questions. So grab a cup of coffee, settle in, and let's start. Do you feel stuck in your life? Do you feel unhappy but not completely sure what that is? Do you hold a grudge towards someone for something they did which affects you and the way you live your life? Have you ever told someone, I forgive you, but in reality you were not completely over what happened? Why is this so difficult to truly forgive? How do we forgive? And can anything and anyone be forgiven? Hi, my name is Rosanna D and I'm the host of the Forgiven Tribe Show. This is a safe and not judgmental place for sharing opinions and challenging experiences where the practice of forgiveness helped individuals to get unstuck and create a much more fulfilling life than they had before. Join me in this exciting journey to unveil how you too can have the life you deserve. Simply click the subscribe button below to receive notification about future episodes. Welcome to the Forgiven Try Show. We all have dreams and aspirations, goals that seem distant, and vision of a future we want to build. We often think that the path to achieving these dreams begins in the world around us. But what if I told you that the key to unlocking your greatness lies not in some distant land, but within you? Yes, that's, that's right, right here, right now. It's all about self-mastery. Self-mastery isn't a concept reserved for selected few or the ultra-disciplined. It's a skill, it's an art, a philosophy that can be cultivated by anyone with the desire to reach their full potential. So today we want to talk about self-mastery. In fact, we are not going just to talk about it. We are going to uncover its secrets, explore its core components, and provide you with practical tools that will light your path up. And we dive into this fascinating topic in a conversation with our guest, Ryan Bush. Ryan is a designer and thinker focused on building better systems, better people, and a better future. As founder of Designing the Mind, Ryan's central purpose is to provide wisdom, education, and expand human potential beyond the norm. He has written multiple best-selling books, including Designing the Mind, The Principle of Architecture, and is about to release a new book titled Become Who You Are. Ryan's background is in design of systems, working with tech startups to design and develop everything from patented physical products to software to buildings to business models. But his most relevant credential 
is a lifelong appetite for introspective investigation and obsessive self-optimization, having studied for many, many years the insights of ancient teachers, practical philosophers, and cognitive scientists. He works to integrate the insights of ancient and modern thinkers to form a new vision for psychological growth and self-mastery. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the Forgiven Try Show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and, and a great intro. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, I'm, as we were talking just before starting, I'm really, really excited to learn about this because you have a kind of scientific background. I have a scientific background. You are interested in everything that has to do with the mind. And I got very interested in recent years on everything that has to do with the mind. So I think we are a very good match here. But before we start into that, I would like to start with you and in particular your journey to uh, move from applied system design to human design and understand what psychitecture really is. It's a very difficult word to pronounce for an Italian. <laughs> Understood. That, and that's okay. It's, it's just psychitecture. It's kind of psychology meets architecture. Um, but uh, so my, my background and how I kind of got here is that I started getting very interested in uh, psychology and philosophy and all these things from a pretty early age. I was, um, I mean, even before I knew what these terms meant, I was very interested in studying my own mind and observing what was going on in there, seeing if I could change what was going on in there. You know, I remember being a, a kid in school and, you know, having some setback and, and, uh, trying to ask myself, can I change the emotion that I feel? Can I cause myself to feel happy in, in response to this negative thing that happened to me? And I was learning all these different sort of tools and taking notes and writing this down and thinking I was kind of the first to figure a lot of this stuff out. And then, of course, I ended up discovering the Stoics and the Buddhists and the Taoists and, and uh, many others who beat me to it by a thousand or two years. But then I started reading these things a lot more heavily. I started getting into uh, everything from positive psychology to evolutionary psychology and neuroscience. Um, and I started integrating a lot of these insights. I started seeing a lot of connections between them. So that was going on in the background. And then um, when I went to college, you know, I kind of decided I didn't want to be an academic, really. I didn't want to be in that space. I felt like it would shut off a part of my creativity. Um, and so I went into a design field. I, I did product design, uh, where I learned how to design everything from physical products to, you know, software experiences and, and kind of everything in between. I've even designed, you know, buildings at this point, like you said. So um, I, I got to a point where... You know, I was kind of feeling uh, at my product design job like I wasn't able to bring everything that I had to, um, to uh, contribute to this space. And I started asking myself if there was a way to integrate these interests in psychology and philosophy and, and changing out my own mind and my design background. And that's kind of what gave rise to psychitecture and designing the mind. Um, I figured out that I could kind of create something that brought all of these different strengths and interests and passions together in one place. Uh, and once I envisioned that, I you know, asked my boss if I could go part-time at my job. I only you know, switched down to two days a week, took a 60% pay cut so I could write this first book 
that um, fortunately has essentially kicked off this whole uh, community and this whole space that allows me to write more books and programs and products on this stuff. And so uh, I'm very thankful that I'm able to be doing this and that I found a way to bring all these strengths together and, and interests into one place. Wow, that is uh, a journey, really. So self-mastery is uh, a very appealing kind of thing, right? Everyone wants to, to achieve it. But perhaps for some people, there might be some confusion on what self-mastery really means. So how do you define that? And what yeah, so can you do for us as well? Yeah, so self-mastery is the ability to understand and control your own beliefs, your own emotions, your own behaviors. Um, it's, you know, kind of a more comprehensive version of self-control. Someone with more self-control is able to uh, deliberately decide which actions they want to take and be able to follow through with those. Um, and this applies also to the development of wisdom, to understanding yourself, knowing how your own mind works, and being able to control and change emotional experiences. So, you know, I kind of break it down into cognitive, emotional, and behavioral self-mastery. And this is sort of the triad that forms the structure of that first book, Designing the Mind. Um, now, when you look really closely at these traits, what you find is a collection of interconnected psychological habits, right? I call them psychological algorithms because that's kind of, uh, you know, what's happening. Our mind is taking in inputs and producing outputs based on a collection of you know, habits or software, essentially. And so I, I started making these connections and, and looking at a lot of things like cognitive behavioral therapy, which basically says that your emotions are the product of your thoughts and beliefs, first and foremost. So when things happen to you, right, it's not just that something bad happened to you and your emotions uh, respond accordingly, that something happens to you, you interpret it negatively, you form a negative belief about it, and that produces a negative emotion. And so understanding how these different nodes connect together, understanding how the mood you're in affects your behaviors and your bad habits, right? Understanding how all these different points sort of interconnect and going in and saying, what are the leverage points? How can we change this? Uh, and I take a very sort of analytical approach to it. I know a lot of self-help is very inspiring and a little bit vague and kind of, um, you're not quite sure what you're supposed to do. And I like going into specific mental mechanisms like anxiety, for example, and saying, how can we master anxiety? Not just like keep managing it. How can we actually get to where we don't experience unwanted anxiety anymore? And I found that, that when you study it that closely, you really do find the leverage points for creating those changes and permanently getting rid of these sort of things that most people assume have to plague your mind for your whole life. So that is very interesting. What are the aspects that we can apply then? I mean, anxiety seems something so far away from systems. So what are the other aspects in life that we can, uh, where we can exploit self-mastery? Absolutely. Uh, self-mastery affects pretty much every area of your life. In the workplace, for example, there are tons of uh, emotions that can affect you and can cause you to make bad decisions, make poor evaluations and judgments, and act in a way that you're not proud of later. So the more self-mastery you have in that kind of area, the more likely you're going to be to succeed in your work, your career. Um, relationships, I think self-mastery is 
huge and really an, an underestimated component of healthy relationships. I mean, there's, there are a lot of people who think that, you know, it's all about uh, communication and saying whatever it is you're thinking at any given time. And uh, I, I tend to find that healthier relationships very often are about controlling yourself, not saying what you're thinking when you're in that certain mood state, right? Being able to exert control over yourself and say, uh, no, I'm not going to act in a way that I wouldn't be proud of later, say something I don't mean. And a big part of, yeah, relationships, work, everything um, essentially is enhanced if you can develop greater mastery over yourself. Um, but it's also kind of a, a direct route to happiness, too. I mean, a lot of the things that we have in our lives, our, our work, our relationships, uh, our accomplishments and possessions, these are sort of an indirect mean to happiness. We get these things because we want them to produce happiness in us, but we can also go directly into our own minds and make changes that will bring a direct kind of happiness that we don't need something outside of us in order to unlock. So uh, we really have every reason to be pursuing self-mastery, but I think we have a tendency to underestimate it. I don't think we're really biologically wired to pay attention to this kind of thing as much as the shiny objects we see around us. And so we, it, it takes a certain kind of rebellion against our own biological wiring to say, no, I'm going to put self-mastery before everything else. I'm going to uh, optimize my mind for well-being first and foremost, and then uh, everything else is secondary after that. I love what you're saying, and in particular the connection with happiness. Because very often I think we connect happiness to something that we need to achieve, something that is in the future. And from what you're saying, it feels almost that with self-mastery we can anchor that happiness to now, what is happening in this moment, mm -hmm. and what I know, what is present, rather than something that might come in the future. Absolutely. And so there, there's a lot of really counterintuitive findings about happiness. Uh, we, we do tend to assume that things that make us feel good in the moment or things that uh, give us that rush, like we've accomplished, some, accomplished something, we've gained this new external thing in our lives, we have this tendency to think that's really going to bring the deepest happiness and we keep sort of navigating our lives that way. And it's really a faulty map for it. I mean, everything we look at, we can see that like lottery winners, for example, that's like the ultimate achievement that people think would make them so happy if they won the lottery. Well, actually, people who win the lottery uh, very quickly go back down to their original levels of happiness. The same is true of a lot of negative experiences, right? People can you know, lose their legs and assume their life is over. And then it, that ends up... Uh, not being the case at all, they very quickly adapt to their new circumstances. And so to, to integrate all this information, in my new book I developed this sort of framework, this model for, for adopting a better map for achieving happiness. And so if you imagine that there's like this two-dimensional chessboard essentially in front of you, right? And you can uh, imagine there's this x-axis, the left and right, uh, that represents pleasure and pain and a y-axis that sort of moves closer to you and further from you. That represents loss and gain, right? This is essentially the map that I argue we're all navigating our lives on by default. We're all trying to optimize pleasure and gain uh, the best we can and kind of balance everything to achieve that. And then when we do achieve that thing and it doesn't make us happier, we tend to sort of shrug and be like, yeah, I don't know why that happened. And then we go back 
back to the drawing board, right? Um, but what I argue is that we should imagine this two-dimensional chessboard is actually having three dimensions. And you can imagine it having uh, you know, mountains and valleys coming out of it. Uh, and the question becomes, what, what is this third dimension, right? How does this actually work? What is actually pulling the strings of our happiness? Well, I have come to the conclusion, both from studying uh, ancient philosophy, like, like Stoicism and Arist Aristotle's work, to modern psychology, evolutionary, and, and neurobiology, and basically concluded that what's really pulling the strings of our happiness is the admirability that we observe in our own behaviors. You might use the word virtue, uh, but this kind of sounds outdated to us today. Um, but really, virtue historically has been a much more interesting, colorful thing than just uh, sort of mandates of moral purity uh, that we think of today. And so what this means is that if something happens in your life that enables you to bring out more of your personal strengths, more of your uh, unique traits that, that you have thrived at throughout your life, uh, then that's going to move you up in this z-axis. It's going to help you climb these mountains, whether or not it's a good thing to happen to you on paper, right? Sometimes very bad things can happen to you that we all label as bad instinctively, but they actually give us an opportunity to exercise new strengths that we didn't have in our old life, and vice versa. Sometimes something great will happen to you, and you end up doing something with that that limits your ability to bring out those strengths. And so really, I argue this is the map we should be using. This is the way we should be navigating our own happiness. It's paying less and less attention to our external circumstances, except as sort of a means to an end, and more attention to how can I bring out more of my personal strengths through this in my life, in my work, in my relationships? How can I exercise those strengths that currently might be latent in me? I like what you're mentioning about virtue. And I have to say, I had a sneaky peek in uh, the, this new book that you are about to, to publish. And you have a, a very interesting way of defining uh, virtue because very often we say, I'm good or bad, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm this way or the other way. It's a more black and white kind of decision. You know, I, either I am or I'm not. While the concept that you bring is more of a spectrum, I, I would like to, to mention that and uh, if you can take us through that idea, because I think it's very interesting and a lot of people may say, you know, may put a lot of pressure on themselves just because of that black and white, yes or no, bin binary kind of view of this kind of virtue. Yeah, a lot of modern moral systems do kind of make it seem black and white, but we all Kind of know when you really study reality nothing's black and white and it's all sort of a spectrum and so i i introduced this virtue spectrum that you can think of as this color gradient full of all these different traits i mean there could be thousands of possibilities uh traits that we tend to admire in other people so when you see someone and you say oh that person's really creative oh that guy's really funny right uh so that person is really compassionate or courageous Right? These are all examples of virtues, and I think there are you know, infinite shades, essentially, of these virtues. You may have virtues that are yours and yours alone, that, that no one else really shares with you. Um, but essentially, this is the, I would say, the right way to think about virtue. It's a spectrum, and, and there are a lot of different virtues that a person can have. 
and you really can't have them all realistically. You're, you're going to have to make decisions and trade-offs, and so often the best thing to ask is what have I always thrived at? What am I naturally good at, and how can I really double down on those strengths and kind of enhance that virtue portfolio, uh, lift it up through my life, um, and, and, and most important, protecting them from situations in your life that might limit them or block them off. We've got so many uh, temptations and distractions in our lives, things that feel good or comfortable in the moment, but if we get locked into a lifestyle where we're not bringing out our personal virtues, uh, I've argued in this book that that is essentially what causes depression. That is how you move down this scale of, of mood towards clinical depression, is when you're not seeing evidence of your own virtues through your life. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. Ryan, I'm known for being a control freak. But today with you, I would like to do a little experiment. And I would like to give you the, the floor because looking at what you have published, there are particularly two books. One is Designing the Mind and, one, and the other is uh, the one that is about to be released, Become Who You Are. That to me, to some extent, um, are almost a roadmap, you know, to achieve greatness through self-mastery. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that. Uh, you design the mind and, and with that you become who you are. Right. And, and I would like to give you the opportunity to help us be self-mastering our own abilities and virtue and everything to achieve greatness. So where do we start? Because it can be really overwhelming, right? So can you take us along that roadmap? Yes. Uh, so there are a lot of exercises that are pretty simple for just starting out, uh, but they can go a really long way. Uh, so one of these things is to start paying attention to when you feel admiration for someone, or alternatively, uh, when you feel disapproval towards something someone is doing, right? And write that down, right? Create a sheet of paper, a document, whatever. Write down when you observe, oh, I really admire this person for X, Y, Z reason. And make sure to write down those reasons. So you, you write down trait number one, trait number two. Could be how they handle difficult situations, uh, right? How they respond well under pressure, right? Could be anything. Um, but, but really create a detailed sort of map of these things that you admire. These, in many ways, I think, provide the roadmap for who you should become and where you should go in your life. So you should be asking, okay, here's a trait that I really admire in other people, but I don't get the chance to bring out a lot, or I'm not very good at this right now. And ask yourself, how can I create a habit, a behavior, uh, an activity in my life that will allow me to bring increasing amounts of this virtue out in my life? And so this is, uh, this is one really great starting exercise that's pretty fun to do. I think anyone can pretty much start doing this and, and it will be an, an excellent guide for you. Um, another one is you can identify what you're already good at, your virtues. Uh, you can, there are quizzes you can take online. You can take the Signature Strengths Test by Martin Seligman. Very good. Also very long. He has a brief version though. Uh, but this will tell you essentially what your top five virtues are, your top five signature strengths. Um, and you will be able to uh, sort of keep these in mind as you're navigating your life. Yeah, these are the things you don't want to lose from your life. You don't want to get yourself in a place, no matter how enjoyable or comfortable, where you're not bringing these things out. Uh, another exercise. 
So if you are, um, you know, there are a lot of people who have a really negative view of themselves. They're really hard on themselves. They have this internal monologue that's constantly critical, even though the people around them think they're wonderful, right? Um, and so this can often be the result of, of developing distorted beliefs. And this is what cognitive behavioral therapy looks at. Uh, and so the, the best way to address this is to just create a log of your moods when you notice you're in a bad mood in particular. Um, try to write down what thought you were ha having before you fell into that negative mood. What is the belief that goes through your head when you get into a mood like this? <clears throat> Sometimes these moods can be you know, really negative spirals that affect us for hours or days and really cause us to question our self-esteem. What was the belief? What was the thought that sort of brought that about? Um, if we can identify this, that's kind of half the battle to getting rid of these negative beliefs. So if you can go in and, um, and actually say, oh, I, I had this thought that I always, you know, I, I'm never going to be a successful student because I got a C on my exam. Well, you got A's on the last three exams. So you know, when you really examine it like that, that's a distorted belief. So you can develop uh, alternative balanced beliefs. You can say, okay, that's the, that's the error. I'm, I'm using black and white thinking, right? And then you can say, well, actually, I, I have to work at it. It doesn't come easily for me, but I can be a good student, right? I am capable of doing well on exams, even though I didn't on the last one. So this type of thing, uh, keeping a log of your moods and thoughts, absolutely huge. Everyone should be taught to do this from the time they're a child, and most people aren't. Most people have to become clinically depressed and go into therapy in order to learn this, right? Now, I said, that, I said earlier that um, if, you, if you have a distorted view of yourself and your behaviors and your virtues, then you need to do this logging process and, and this cognitive restructuring process. Now, it's also possible that you don't necessarily have a distorted view. You really have adopted a lifestyle where you're not doing much to bring out those strengths. And as a result, your brain isn't able to see evidence of those virtues, right? So as far as your brain is concerned, you just don't have those strengths. Even though they're in there, your brain is like, no, no, we got to lower the mood uh, because, you know, this person isn't demonstrating virtue, um, at least according to this theory that I've developed in this book. And so um, in that case, right, if, uh, a lot of people become severely depressed. They, they end up withdrawing and... and becoming like, you know, they can't get out of bed most days, they aren't taking a shower, or, you know, doing basic hygiene things. If this is where you're at, um, you know, what you really need to do is what's called behavioral activation. So you need to adopt an activity schedule where you're saying, okay, every day I'm going to do these simple activities, right? Initially, um, depending on where you're at on your mood scale, you can start really small and say, every day I'm going to take a shower, every day I'm going to clean up my room a little bit, right? As you adapt to this and you become able to do these activities, you want to gradually increase the virtue that you're bringing out. So you can add going on a walk or reading a book. You can add calling a friend. As you add a little bit more advanced activities, slowly over time, your mood starts to lift because you start seeing evidence of those traits that you pride yourself on, right? And so this can be one of the most effective practices. This is better than antidepressants in terms of uh, success rates. Uh, and it's so simple that most people assume it's not going to do much. But actually adopting that activity schedule and making sure you are 
giving yourself evidence every day that you're a competent, likable person that you are, uh, if you can do this, you, you can elevate your mood a lot if you're in a negative state. There is so much to unpack here, right? Uh, you started with admiration. And the first thing that came to my mind is, how do we distinguish between true admiration and, for example, the conditioning that we might have from society or from the way we were brought up? And, um, you know, sometimes we have an understanding of what is good and what is bad based on what we knew since we were kids. So is there a way to, to distinguish between that? through admiration and useful or, I don't know, um, something that really keeps us on that path to self-mastery? Yeah, great question. So a lot of us do have this kind of conditioning built up where what we think we approve of is really what society approves of. Um, a lot of us today live in a society where nothing is more important than money and profit, right? And that's what our workplaces tell us, that's what school tells us implicitly, is that this is what we're working towards, is more and more money and profitability. And, uh, and that's not really a, a virtue that we possibly could have evolved to value because it didn't exist. There was no currency when our brains evolved. And so uh, really, I think uh, a big part of this is asking big questions, exploring philosophy, asking yourself questions about what you really believe and value. And, and in some cases, these will be difficult questions. They'll feel like a threat to your worldview. But ultimately, and Nietzsche, who's a big inspiration of this book, would have said the same thing, you need to take a philosophical wrecking ball to your current worldview, your beliefs, your values, and, and you have to see what remains standing once you've done that. And so um, a big part of this is just going in and questioning all this stuff and getting to a point where you have greater perspective about these things. Uh, you know, philosophy is in many ways like travel. When you travel and, and study a different culture that's very different from yours, it sort of hits you that, oh, things can be different. The way I've been brought up is not the only way to do things. And studying philosophy and, and introspecting is a way of basically realizing the same thing about your beliefs. The way I see the world is not the only way to see it. And you need to expose yourself to a lot of those different ways of seeing it in order to eventually feel comfortable saying, okay, this is what I really admire. This is what I really believe, not just what I've been told to. Fantastic. So these are all exercises that I think uh, a lot of people can do. You mentioned the emotions, and especially if we are, for example, in professional environment, in, uh, in social environment, a lot of people talk about uh, emotional intelligence, for example. And... Mm -hmm. uh, how that comes into self-mastery or intersects self-mastery and what strategies we can use to enhance these skills. Yeah, so, so I talk a lot about all these individual emotions we face in the first book. Um, and in many cases, they all require their own creative solutions, right? If you want to develop mastery over a certain emotion, you need to understand it, you need to know its function, and you need to learn how to work with it and work around it so that you can sort of rewire things. Um, now, the, the fact is our, our emotions are basically there to get us to do things that are good for our genes, right? That's why they were built into our brains. 
right? If, if we, um, you know, if it's good for our genes that we run away from the tiger in front of us, we'll experience fear. If it's good for our genes that we go up and fight someone who's trying to hurt someone we care about, right, we'll experience anger. And so in some of these cases, these are healthy. But in a lot of cases, both because they're not necessarily looking out for us and because they are, um, they were developed in a world that looks very little like the world we live in today, right? We need to be a little bit skeptical of our emotions and we need to understand why they're there and when we can uh, do away with them and how to do that. And so I go through a lot of these different emotions. I mean, you can take, uh, you can take envy, for example. Uh, we experience envy when we come across someone who has something that we want for ourselves. And I think one of the best ways to rewire envy, uh, you can find it in a, a quote by Kevin Kelly, which is, don't be the best, be the only. And if you think about this in terms of your personal virtues, right, if you're envious of someone, that means you're, you're basically saying, oh, they're, they're the best, they're better than me, and I'm below them. And really, you should be saying, are they more me than I am? Have they actualized my strengths better than I have? And if so, then, then you know which direction you need to be going in. You need to bring out those strengths that make you, yourself, uh, better than anyone else. And I think, I think that's a big part of this path, right? You can look at anxiety, which I built a whole program around anxiety. I could talk about it for quite a few hours, but uh, essentially anxiety uh, is, is a little bit like fear turned back on itself because uh, when you experience anxiety, you are afraid of the own, your own fear responses. You're afraid of the scary thoughts that you're thinking or the feelings, the elevated heart rate. You're afraid you're going to have a panic attack. And this is exactly what escalates anxiety to the point of a panic attack or something like that. And so in many cases, uh, what it means to eliminate anxiety is to essentially find a way to accept and embrace the feelings instead of doing your natural instinct, which is to resist and fight the feelings. When you resist the feelings, uh, that tells your brain, oh, this is actually dangerous. And then that amplifies them and, and it escalates them further and further until uh, you're feeling extremely anxious, your heart feels like you're gonna beat out of your chest uh, and you may have an actual panic attack. The, the interesting thing about it that almost is hard to believe, but it's very true, is if no one resisted their feelings of anxiety, no one would ever have a panic attack because as soon as you accept that, that you're feeling what you are and you don't treat it like it's a danger in itself, the anxiety starts to subside. And so asking yourself, how can I stop avoiding in this situation? Whether you are afraid of something, uh, like an actual phobia, or you're having a worry about the future. If you ask yourself, how can I stop resisting it? Uh, that is the path toward eliminating that fear. And I say this as someone who uh, experienced social anxiety for, for quite a few years. Uh, and I basically got past that to the point where I can go on podcasts and things like this uh, by asking myself, how can I expose myself to the thing I'm afraid of? How can I stop avoiding and embrace this thing? And if you do that in incremental steps, you will gradually eliminate whatever anxiety you have. And this applies to every type of fear and anxiety and worry. Mm. You mentioned here accepting our emotions. And I want to take you from accepting our emotion to self-acceptance. And sometimes when we don't accept the person we are, we are really in trouble. So how do we 
strike a balance, if you like, between self-mastery and self-acceptance? And is it possible to achieve greatness without changing who we are at our core? Great question. So there's a, often a conflict that people present between accepting yourself and changing yourself, right? Being at peace with who you are and becoming something greater. It seems like there's a contradiction in doing that. Uh, but I would say there actually isn't, because acceptance is about how you feel and how you think and evaluate in the present, right? When you accept something, you're saying, yes, right now I am experiencing this emotion. I'm not denying it. I'm not trying to brute force push it away. It's also about saying, I am who I am right now, and I'm, I'm in acceptance of that. I'm not in denial. I'm not going to adopt narcissistic delusions and tell myself I'm something other than I am. I'm going to accept that this is exactly where I'm at right now in the present, right? That's extremely important to do. That's kind of the prerequisite step before anything else you want to do. But it's also possible to say, well, in the future, I think things could be better. I think we could get to a point where I'm not experiencing this emotion every day. I think I could get to the point where I have these strengths that I'm bringing out and not uh, a lot of these weakness that I'm, weaknesses that I'm seeing. And so really, the, the right answer is accept and change, right? Embrace and become. Right? It's not an either-or kind of thing. It's, it's absolutely both, but people try to make it uh, you know, one or the other. Uh, and I think it's really important that we not cave into this. We not, um, we not just believe that acceptance means I'm never going to change, I'm not going to grow or evolve. Uh, I'm just going to stay exactly as I am, and I'm going to tell myself I'm the best in the world, even though I'm not really earning that title through my actions and behaviors. Right? So I think accepting your strengths and your weaknesses, accepting your values and how you line up to them at this point in your life is important. But you also have to say, how can I get a little closer? How can I get a little better tomorrow, even though today I am where I am? Wow, that's absolutely beautiful. So if you had to describe some key attributes that individuals have to have so that they can master themselves, what would you say? What would you list? Yeah, so I, I have kind of corresponding terms to each of the three components of self-mastery. So for cognitive self-mastery, you have wisdom, right? And wisdom is kind of a culmination of both rationality about the world around you and introspective clarity about the world inside of you. You kind of need both of these uh, in order to have wisdom. If you look at somebody who is really smart and they're really accomplished and productive, they're good at getting things done in the world around them, but they're not happy. Often this is because they don't have great understanding of the world inside them. They don't know their own mind and their own emotions very well. And as a result, uh, they're, they're only taking half of the equation into their happiness. They're accomplishing things out there, but they're not doing it in a way that resonates with what's in here, right? And so that's, that's wisdom, that's the first sort of attribute. Uh, second, we have emotional self-mastery, and this is sort of embodied in equanimity. This is, you know, the term for tranquility or serenity that uh, a lot of the ancient Greek thinkers used, and, uh, and it's very fitting today. It's about getting to a point where uh, you are undisturbed by what happens to you. The external world doesn't affect you. Only your own decisions affect which emotion you experience at any time. And in many ways, this is a lofty ideal. We'll never achieve perfection on this front, but we can get 
much better at it. And so, you know, Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics, uh, Marcus said, you know, be like a headland of rock that waves crash on and it, and it doesn't move, it's not affected by them. And that's what we want to get to ideally in our emotion. We are not able to be put into a bad mood by something out there happening to us, uh, but we experience the, the emotions that our ideal self would experience at any given time. Uh, and then the third component, the behavioral self-mastery, is just simple self-control, right? I mean, it's simple, but it's not easy, right? There are a lot of methods to developing self-control. Um, and I go through a lot of these in the later chapters of that first book. I talk about all these different methods um, and, and threats, too. I mean, there is a risk of corruption and compliance and uh, all these different things that can kind of creep in and take our self-control self away from us. And so learning how to hack these in a sense, uh, learning how to change the antecedents or the inputs that you have in your environment, learning how to change the way you interpret things so that you can control yourself better. Uh, you know, people who uh, give in to temptations of things like overeating or smoking, very often they interpret these things in a way that's not healthy, and you can learn how to change your interpretation so that you no longer are as tempted by these things. Um, you know, there are, you can change the consequences of your actions. And so you can make it so you give yourself a reward when you take certain uh, positive behaviors. You can create sort of a token economy where you get, you know, five points for doing this action and then you can cash those in and go to a concert at the end of the month. Um, and so there are you know, endless tools for actually achieving self-control. Uh, but it's not just a uh, sort of New Year's resolution type of I really want this right now, I'm going to be really motivated, and then I'm going to burn out in three weeks, right? This is about building sustainable systems in your own mind. And, uh, and all together, this can add up to self-mastery across the board. Mm, love it. So in view of that, uh, um, you know, sustainability, if you like, uh, you know, to achieve greatness and self-mastery, what would you say are the most common challenges that people face when they are going through that uh, path? Very good question. I think, uh, I, I think it can be easy to want progress to happen a lot faster than it does. I think it can be easy to try something for a day and say that didn't work and then give up on it. The fact is we have a lot of exercises. I mean, all my programs are like 30 day, 30 exercises. And, and, you know, a lot of people start and the ones who finish those 30 day programs, you know, end up saying this was truly life changing. But a lot of people give up in that first week and, and don't ever get to a point where it pays off. So I think that's one of the big ones. I also think um, you know, we talk a lot about mindfulness today and uh, in general, metacognitive awareness, which kind of the same as mindfulness, uh, is really a necessary prerequisite step for these changes. A lot of people who would like to make changes to their minds, they really don't know what's going on in their minds at any given time. They don't have a lot of uh, clarity into what thoughts they're having, what feelings are actually going on in there. They, it's like a black box for them. And so that's when mindfulness becomes really important. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, it, it's, it's kind of like trying to repair your glasses without taking them off of your face. It's like it's, close to you to be able to observe it and, and actually make changes. So you need a, a way of stepping back. And I think meditation is one way of doing that. I think a lot of these 
logging exercises we're talking about, where you're actually trying to notice and write down your thoughts and feelings. It's another great way of doing this. But you need to get to a point where you actually notice and you, you kind of know what's going on in your head. Uh, this will basically get you halfway there. If you can do this, uh, changing what's going on in your head is actually the, the easy part. Mm. I, I love that. But, you know, as they say, life happens. And sometimes staying uh, motivated uh, can be an issue. Uh, having that discipline to continue something for 30 days sometimes can also be challenging. So um, what can we do to improve our motivation perhaps or discipline in uh, continuing something on that path until it becomes an habit, it, it becomes something that we are happy to continue regardless of what happens around us. Yeah, one of the greatest tools for doing this is social accountability. Uh, if you look at like how much you achieved back in school, for example, if you had that pile of papers in front of you, you'd be absolutely amazed and you'd say, how did I accomplish this much over that period of time? And a lot of the reason isn't just because you wanted to learn or you wanted to get that degree. It's because you had a community, uh, a social tribe around you uh, and, you know, authority figures, all these people that you didn't want to disappoint. And that's an incredibly powerful tool for accomplishing things. Um, when I was writing my first book, I pretty much write it, wrote it using a tool called Focusmate, um, which is essentially an online, it calls itself a virtual co-working tool, but it basically pairs you with random people. You go on video chats and you talk to these people uh, for just a couple minutes about what you want to accomplish and what they want to accomplish in the next hour. And then you both just silently work and you check back in at the end. And every single time I did one of these sessions and told the other person, I'm going to write a thousand words in the next hour, I really did write a thousand words. And usually when I just told myself I was going to write a thousand words, I didn't even get a hundred. And so it's such a powerful tool to, to tell someone else what you're doing and have that accountability, have someone checking in and monitoring your progress. Uh, it's a big part of why I created MindForm, my online community that will hopefully before too long be an offline community as well. Um, you know, it's a place where people can get together and uh, set big growth goals for themselves. And we have weekly check-ins. We have this thing called Growth Accelerator where every week you make a post about your progress, you build a system, you share with everyone and you comment on theirs. And what this does is it really gives you an extra boost to achieve those growth goals that you wouldn't have if you were just silently doing it by yourself. And so I think harnessing tools like social accountability, there are a lot of other things like this, but this is one of the best tools I know of, uh, can really do a great job at actually getting you to follow through with those ambitious goals. Fantastic. Moving on, are there specific habits or uh, routines perhaps that people can incorporate in, uh, into their lives that can facilitate their journey to self-mastery? Yeah, it's a great question. One of my favorite habits is not even something that takes much discipline at all, which is just going on long walks regularly. I mean, if this did nothing besides just get you exercise and sunlight, uh, it would be a great habit in itself, but it has a lot more mental benefits than you realize actually giving yourself the time and the space to reflect 
uh, to ask yourself questions, to come to terms with your emotions, is a, a huge thing that most of us don't have. I mean, most of us are pretty much filling all of our time with some kind of stimulation, some kind of, you know, we're, we're going on a drive and listening to a podcast or, uh, you know, we're getting to work and going through emails and we really don't have much time with ourselves. And so uh, one of the best habits that I kind of tell everyone to build uh, is to go on regular long walks and just spend time with yourself. And a lot of these things will end up resolving themselves. You'll end up making a lot of realizations about yourself. Um, and this is how I, I mean, developed a lot of these ideas over the last decade or two is by going on long walks and asking myself questions. And that's why um, you know, I, I made a deck of introspection cards. Uh, it's 81 cards of like questions to ask yourself and a little pocket-sized logbook. And I basically say at the beginning, take one card, go on a long walk, write down your answer, and then do it again the next day. And you will gradually build this sort of temple of self-knowledge that you can use as a tool for self-mastery. Um, and so this is one of the best sort of habits I know of. I actually don't have an elaborate like morning routine. I have in the past had dozens of habits every week, and I found a lot of them to just be distractions. Uh, I think one of the best things you can do is just really notice when you're having a certain thought or emotion and writing it down, right? Just build a habit of, of a simple journal that you can uh, write down when you're feeling grateful, when you're feeling ashamed, when you're feeling proud and resilient, right? Whatever it is, noticing these things and writing them down is going to be a, a game changer for your mental health. Beautiful. And talking about emotions that uh, we develop in, uh, in certain situations of our life, you know, this podcast is called Forgive and Drive. And for me, it was a kind of roadmap. Uh, you know, I had to forgive, especially myself, and let go a lot of uh, negative emotions, so disempowering emotions that I created uh, over a number of situations in order to, to thrive again. Now, when we talk about self-mastery, I can see the connection, self-mastery and thriving. Is there also a connection between forgiveness and self-mastery? Absolutely, because forgiveness is really about blame, whether it's blame that we're putting on someone else for something bad that happened to us or blame that we're putting on ourselves. And this is one of these emotions like anything else that I think has to be worked through. Um, ultimately, I think one of the biggest things you can realize is that blame doesn't really help anything. It doesn't help anyone, right? To, to whether you're saying some, this is someone else's fault, um, you know, that doesn't help you because it doesn't really, it's not something you can control. You can't control something that other people do. If you're blaming yourself for something, that's also misguided because you're essentially saying, I should have known better than I did at the time even though I, I made the best decision I could using the information I had at the time, right? And so, so we're really holding ourselves to a ridiculous standard when we do that. And we're also uh, failing to let go of the past. I mean, we, we are failing to accept the fact that we can no longer change anything about the past, but we can change this moment going forward. And pretty much any way you look at it, continuing to hold on to blame and resentment uh, is a uh, it has no benefits moving forward into the future. It doesn't do anything good for you or anyone else. And so forgiveness is a psychotextural tool. It's a tool for self-mastery for changing these negative emotions. Whether you're forgiving someone else or forgiving yourself, 
you can find a way to truly do that, you will have overcome and, and rewired that emotion of blame and, and resentment that you're putting on, uh, on somebody. So I think it's, it's along with all those other tools for you know, anxiety and anger and all these different emotions we face, forgiveness is a really powerful, we could say, psychotechnology for making change in our minds. I absolutely love that. So, yeah, great. <laughs> I, I, I try to verify this roadmap every time with every guest. <laughs> Thank you for confirming that. Uh, yeah. Ryan, I would like to come back on, uh, on you before we conclude this lovely conversation. And is there anything else that you want to share about, with, with us about what you are doing or are you working? I know this uh, new book is uh, about to be published, so Probably there will be some work there in promoting it, but is there anything else you want to mention? No, I think, um, you know, we, we really are going to be trying to get a lot of pre-orders for this book, um, really kind of uh, make a big splash and, and help it reach and impact a lot more people uh, than even the last book did. And so um, chances are when this airs, the book will be available for pre-order. So you can look up Become Who You Are anywhere, you know, online, possibly in stores. Um, and, uh, and pre-order that and I'll send you a bunch of bonuses too, a bunch of other free books and stuff if you do that. Um, but in general, you can go to designingthemind.org slash psychitecture and I can send you a link for that. But uh, this will get you a couple of free books, including uh, kind of a mini quote book that I put together called The Book of Self-Mastery. So very fitting for all this. Um, and it'll get you on the email list and you'll know when the new book is officially uh, for sale. So that's... Uh, that's the place to go. Fantastic. So that is probably also the best place to get in touch with you and to learn more about what you're doing, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Designing the mind. Fantastic. So, Ryan, very final question. If there was one take-home message that you would love everybody to remember from this conversation, what that would be? Don't evaluate your life according to what is going on on paper in your circumstances. Don't decide whether you're a success or a failure based on what is going on around you. Uh, make the decision about whether you're where you need to be based on uh, the self-mastery that you've cultivated, the success of character that you've built inside yourself, and how well you've been able to, to cultivate and bring out your unique personal virtues. Right? If you uh, evaluate your life this way and you make decisions this way, you'll be on a true path to deep happiness rather than just constant distractions and diversions like we're sort of trained to pursue in our lives. That's absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Well, as we draw the curtains on this enlightening episode, one thing becomes really clear to me and that the path to greatness isn't reserved to a chosen few, but is accessible to each and every one of us. It begins with self-mastery, a journey of self-discovery and continuous improvement. And on that note, I want to leave you with an inspiring quote from Lao Tzu who said, Knowing others is intelligence. Knowing yourself is through wisdom. Mastering others is strength. Mastering yourself is through power. Ryan, thank you so much for accepting our invitation, for sharing so much about self-mastery. Uh, I think a lot of people will really benefit from this episode. So thank you so much. And good luck. Yeah, love that quote. And <laughs> saying love that quote and thanks so much for having me. Fantastic. 
Well, we would love to know what you think about this topic. Are you already on your path to self-mastery? If so, let us know about that journey. But if not, then I'm sure you will find this episode very inspiring to put you on your own path to self-mastery and greatness. Also, don't forget to check Ryan's website, his books, and to follow him on social media. You will find all the links in the description of today's episode. Join me next time when we will continue exploring inspiring and challenging situations. Because remember, we are together in this journey. Remember, forgiveness is like a muscle. The more you practice, the stronger and more effective it becomes. If you haven't done it yet, you can subscribe by clicking the subscribe button below. If you know anybody who could benefit from the topics discussed in this show, do some good and share the link with them. If you have a story that you want to share with us, comments or suggestions on topics you would like to be explored, send me an email at forgiventrive at gmail.com. Reviews will also be very much appreciated. And with this, it's a wrap. Till next time. Thank you and goodbye.